The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, the host of Deadline DC. I'm a national democratic strategist and a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. On the show today, we've got uh, much to do. Uh, in the first half hour, our guest is Colonel Cedric Layton, US Air Force retired, who you may have seen on CNN uh, talking about uh, military matters, especially the Ukraine, which we will discuss today. Uh, in the second half hour, uh, I'm going to start the half hour by updating you on the work of the uh, January 6th committee, uh, which today uh, recommended criminal charges uh, for criminal charges against former President uh, Donald Trump. And we'll see what the Department of uh, Justice does with those referrals. Uh, then we will talk to Edward Theogene uh, from the Center for American Progress about uh, the racial uh, atmosphere in this country right now. But we'll start off uh, talking about the Ukraine. And uh, we have a clip for you uh, from ABC News uh, with the Pentagon spokesman, uh, General Ryder, uh, discussing aid to Ukraine, followed by uh, Martha Raddatz of ABC News and uh, Tom Sufi, uh, Tom uh, Sufi Burge, uh, who is uh, on the ground in the Ukraine. Here's that clip. The U.S. is not at war with Russia, and we do not seek conflict. Our focus is on providing Ukraine with the security assistance that it needs to defend itself, uh, and that's something we said we would do uh, well before Russia chose to invade and something we will continue to do for as long as it takes. The Biden administration has committed roughly $20 billion in military aid to Ukraine since Russia's invasion this year. More could be on the way. The president is poised to approve the delivery of a vital new defense system, despite new warnings from Russia. Tom Sufi Burridge is in Kyiv with the latest. Good morning to you, Tom. Martha, more nuclear saber-rattling this weekend. The Kremlin deploying another nuclear-capable hypersonic missile system, putting its regiment on active combat duty. This week, Russia firing a wave of 76 cruise missiles at Ukrainian power stations. Ukraine saying it shot 60 of those down, with the US now moving to bolster Ukraine's air defense. <gasps> This week, Russia wreaking more destruction on Ukrainian power stations in videos posted by Ukrainian officials. 
its campaign to cause misery and suffering for the people of Ukraine this winter unrelenting, meaning millions here going into this weekend without running water and heating in their homes. The US providing Ukraine with parts and equipment to repair the damage. And in a major shift, now moving to help Ukraine better protect its skies. US officials saying President Biden poised to sign off on long-range Patriot air defense missile systems for Ukraine. Moscow reacting, calling it a provocative move. But a senior Ukrainian defense official telling me it would be, quote, a game changer in the war. Some in the U.S. say it will help. It will go a long way to plug those gaps in the Ukrainian air defense. But for the people of Ukraine who shelter and sing in the metro when it's raining missiles outside, more U.S. military aid can't come soon enough. That trademark defiance shining bright. Today's strike's cutting the power for millions of people across Ukraine. It's dark and freezing outside, but inside these temporary shelters, there is light, heating and internet too. We found Dasha studying here. Each time a missile lands, she says, her determination grows. Everything that uh, doesn't kill us makes us uh, like more braver. That uh, clip, news clip on Ukraine was from ABC News uh, talking about uh, the uh, conditions, the nasty conditions on the ground in Ukraine and Biden administration's uh, response to it. Our guest in this half hour is CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, he's here. Uh, he is uh, retired uh, as an intelligence officer uh, in the U.S. Air Force, where he served for more than two decades. He is also the president and CEO of Leighton, uh, Cedric Layton Associates, which is an international cons security uh, consultancy. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Colonel Layton. It's always have a pleasure uh, to have you on. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Brad. Thanks so much. You know, there's so much going on here. Uh, let, let me start with this question here. I got a ton of stuff to ask you. Um, but in the clip, uh, General Ryder, the uh, Pentagon spokesman, uh, went out of his way to say we're not at war with Russia. Uh, boy, it seems that way sometimes, doesn't it? Is that just a legal nicety so we don't have to invoke Congress to declare war? It seems like we're in a war with Russia. Well, it's interesting, uh, you know, Brad, because one of the key elements here is that the Russians think they're at war with us. Uh, and by the same token, you know, our political process, our leadership, whether it's the Pentagon or Congress or the White House, uh, they are vehemently opposed to getting into a war with Russia for a lot of different reasons. And also, oh, by the way, I should mention NATO. NATO is also not looking at this as a war directly with Russia. However, uh, everybody that I've just mentioned sees Russia as a very major threat, uh, an existential threat even to the Western European order of things, whether it's the European 
European Union or NATO. And those are the kinds of things that they're trying to protect against. So yes, part of it is we don't want to declare war on Russia. We don't want to have to go through that rigmarole. And frankly, we don't want to engage in military operations directly against Russia. Now, there's always a nuance here. And one of the key things to think about is while we're talking about this in the general sense, when you go into specific areas like, let's say, the cyber realm, uh, we're definitely uh, in competition at the very least with the Russians. And some would say we're definitely in conflict with them. Yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know what we're going to call this. We call Korea police action. Uh, we have names for all sorts of, or incursions or whatever, but uh, I guess for anything to avoid the dreaded W word. Uh, okay, well, let's, uh, you know, it's pretty clear from that clip that things are pretty rugged in Ukraine now. I guess, you know, I guess a lot of people in, in Ukraine don't have any power. They don't have any heat because the Russians have been systematically uh, trying to knock out the uh, power grid. Uh, there's also pressure uh, on Ukraine, perhaps from the United States. We won't see until next year. Uh, we are apparently going to send them uh, anti-missile defense systems. Uh, but now Republicans in charge of the House of Representatives uh, and some Republicans have expressed, uh, uh, especially from the Putin wing of the Republican Party, uh, have expressed skepticism about spending all that money there. Uh, and uh, so can Ukraine hold out? If Ukraine doesn't get Western aid, it won't be able to hold out, at least not the way it's been able to so far. Uh, I would definitely expect to see guerrilla actions and things like that if, for example, the worst happened and uh, U.S. and NATO aid were stopped. But I don't think that's going to happen. We've got, uh, you know, a lot of Republicans uh, besides, uh, you know, the, the radical element that you talked about uh, are very much supportive of aid to the Ukrainians. And they do see this as a fight against an autocracy uh, and a defense of democracies, kind of borrowing from President Biden's phrases. Uh, but what we're, we're really looking at here is, uh, you know, I think on the part of some of these people is a failure to understand how important this yeah. is. And that's going to be a key thing here. OK, uh, we have to take our first break in the hour, uh, but we'll uh, continue our discussion with CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, if you want, uh, Cedric's uh, Twitter handle is Cedric Layton, uh, at Cedric Layton, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. Uh, you can find more about uh, his uh, consulting firm at www.cedriclayton.com. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about the Ukraine after we get back from break. Uh, we're going to give our radio listeners a rest here, but we will be continuing the interview on video on Twitter and Facebook. So don't go anywhere and we'll be back with our radio listeners in a couple of minutes. With Brad we're back with our entire audience, video and audio. And by the way, 
uh, to our radio listeners, if you'd like to watch us as well as listen to us, uh, there are all sorts of ways you can do that. You can watch us on twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon. Uh, you can see us on facebook.com front slash deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. And you can always also check us out on uh, YouTube. Our guest in this half hour is CNN military analyst, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, who's here to uh, discuss the uh, military and political situation in Ukraine. Uh, is there any, Colonel Layton, is there any threat? The Russians uh, have, there's fighting in the eastern part of the country now near the Russian border. Uh, the Ukrainians have uh, reclaimed some of the territory they lost to the Russians uh, earlier in the war. Uh, do you, uh, when do you expect, uh, is there going to be another uh, Russian offensive at some point, um, or is uh, Putin just going to wait out the winter? Well, I think there is the possibility, Brad, of a Russian offensive. Now, this is a kind of an interesting development. General Zaluzhny, who is the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, gave an interview to The Economist in which he unequivocally stated that he expected the Russians to try to lunge again at Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine. Uh, this is exactly what they tried to do at the very beginning of this part of this war uh, back in February of, of this year. Uh, so that is one possibility. And as part of that, uh, General Zaluzhny uh, made uh, reference to the fact that uh, Belarus could be uh, an area where the Russians would base some of their forces in and then work with Belarusian forces to come into Ukraine. Uh, Belarus is uh, basically on the northern border of Ukraine and uh, very close uh, to Kyiv uh, and, and about 40 miles away as the crow would fly. Uh, so it is definitely possible that this could be done. The one thing that is, uh, you know, that kind of mitigates against that is that we haven't seen uh, the types of concentrations of forces that we would expect to see if there were that kind of an invasion. The invasion could also come from other areas, like you mentioned, the east. Uh, there's big fighting around the town of Bakhmut in the northeastern part of the country. Uh, and uh, possibly also something in the south, uh, but that seems to be a much uh, lesser likelihood than what we see in either the east or the north. Now, uh, this is just based on my opinion, and I'm watching too many uh, World War One and World War II doc military documentaries, but it's, it's easier to fight an offensive in the winter uh, because once you get uh, into spring, the roads, there's so much rain, the roads become impassable, don't they? That's right. And actually, those World War One and World War Two uh, documentaries are uh, pretty much accurate when it comes to describing the kinds of conditions that you could find in Ukraine right now. Uh, in the east is especially an area where you would find trenches very similar to what you saw on the Western Front in World War One, and even parts of the Eastern Front in that, in that conflict. Uh, so think of the Battle of Verdun, uh, you know, for the history buffs out there and uh, look at how bad those conditions were. You can see uh, the types of trenches that you saw in Verdun 
uh, manned by Ukrainian forces and on the other side, Russian forces, right around Bakhmut, the town that we just talked about, and other parts of what I'll call the Eastern Front in, in Ukraine right now. So that's something that can happen. Uh, basically, for an offensive operation, you want the ground to be frozen over so that you can run with tanks, you can run with armored personnel carriers, and you can achieve some degree of surprise. Uh, and you also want to keep that type of terrain going until the spring rains. The spring and the fall are very muddy seasons in Ukraine, and that's something that uh, would definitely stall in advance uh, because the mud there is something uh, that uh, is not very typical. It's so extreme uh, that uh, you know everybody from Napoleon to the Wehrmacht got stuck in in those mud uh, mudded areas. So it's a very clear factor in offensive operations in this war. You know, I've watched a couple of documentaries on the World War II struggle between the Germans uh, and uh, the Russians. And the same place names in the Ukraine that we hear now, you know, come up during that. They're just, you know, refighting the battles on the same places. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there's a reason they call this area the bloodlands of Europe. And uh, one of them is that we continue, you know, not we necessarily, but uh, people continue to fight over them right now. And that is uh, something that has been going on for really thousands of years. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about one more topic, and I suspect we're going to have to impose on you to come back after the first of the year, because I think at some point this is going to be a very hot issue, especially once uh, the new Republican majority takes control of the House. Uh, there are concerns about uh, the uh, uh, social media app, TikTok. Uh, why, could you talk about those security concerns? Sure, uh, Brad. Basically, what uh, TikTok, of course, is used by a lot of teenagers and uh, young adults, uh, and uh, you know, it's it's a video app that allows people to express themselves uh, visually in many different ways. Um, the problem is that it's owned by a Chinese-based company called ByteDance, and uh, because it's a Chinese-owned company, the allegation is that uh, the data that TikTok collects on its users and uh, on the people that post things on it, uh, that that data is uh, being mined by the Chinese intelligence services. Uh, it's part of a basic program by the Chinese to collect data on every single person on the planet. They are doing it with their own people right now. And as many people from outside of China that they can come into contact with, they will collect data, everything from facial recognition data, such as you know different points on your face. Uh, and uh, they will be able then to determine all kinds of things about people, potentially even mimicking their identities. So that's one of the reasons why uh, TikTok has been banned in several states uh, from government uh, and uh, government uh, phones, and uh, there's a possibility of a national ban in this area as well. Well, let me ask you: is is this a real? Is this something that uh, Congress should take action on? Because it sounds pretty serious. Yeah, it is absolutely something that Congress should take action on. In fact, they should have looked at this a long time ago. Uh, but uh, it is a serious issue. It is uh, a new phase of warfare that uh, most people don't really understand. And even practitioners of warfare uh, don't necessarily understand it fully. Uh, but it is a very serious uh, area, and it's something that... Uh, we really have to have much further regulation on uh, to make sure that uh, data doesn't get sent to unwanted places. Uh, 
I've heard, I know some Republican, I've heard some Republicans, House Republicans talk about the need to do something. Uh, what is, uh, and very quickly, we have about 30 seconds left, what is the Biden administration's position? Does it have one? Well, it, it seems to be putting together a position which is somewhat supportive of the Republican efforts. They may not ban TikTok outright, uh, but what they're looking at is definitely limiting access on federal networks to that platform. And that would definitely be the right move if they decide to do it. Okay, I want to thank our guest in this half hour, CNN military analyst uh, and retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. Uh, for talking about Ukraine and TikTok. I also want to wish Colonel Layton uh, a happy holiday season. Uh, he spent a lot of time in the show on the show uh, over the whole year and years before that. I think I've had you on the show more than I have anybody else, uh, which is a very good thing because uh, we have an interesting conversation. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC after these messages. When uh, news breaks, uh, we fix it here on Deadline DC. That's a line I told, I stole from John Stewart. He used to use it on The Daily Show back in the day. Uh, we're going to start this half hour uh, with a clip uh, from the uh, January 6th uh, House Investigation Committee, uh, which uh, had big news today. And we'll play the clip so you know what that news is. In the context of resolving evidentiary privilege issues this, related to the crime fraud doctrine in the Eastman case, U.S. District Court Judge David Carter examined just a small subset of our evidence to determine whether it showed the likely commission of a federal offense. The judge concluded that both former President Donald Trump and John Eastman likely violated two federal criminal statutes. This is the starting point for our analysis today. The first criminal statute we invoke for referral, therefore, is Title 18, Section 1512C, which makes it unlawful for anyone to corruptly obstruct, influence, or impede any official proceeding of the United States government. We believe that the evidence described by my colleagues today and assembled throughout our hearings warrants a criminal referral of former President Donald J. Trump, John Eastman, and others for violations of this statute. The whole purpose and obvious effect of Trump's scheme were to obstruct, influence, and impede this official proceeding, the central moment for the lawful transfer of power in the United States. Second, we believe that there is more than sufficient evidence to refer former President Donald J. Trump, John Eastman, and others for violating Title 18, Section 371. This statute makes it a crime to conspire to defraud the United States. In other words, to make an agreement to impair, obstruct, or defeat the lawful functions of the United States government by deceitful or dishonest means. Former President Trump did not engage in a plan to defraud the United States acting alone. He
he entered into agreements, formal and informal, with several other individuals who assisted him with his criminal objectives. When news breaks, we fix it here on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, and this news is about as broken as you can possibly get. Uh, prosecuting a former president opens up a heaping can of legal and political worms, but no man, even a president, should be above the law. If anything, a president should be held to even higher standard of contact to conduct to set a president for future presidents and to restore trust in a political system that Trump did so much to break. Uh, we're uh, going to, uh, in this half hour, um, our guest is uh, Edwith Theogene, who uh, we've had on the show before. She is the senior director of racial equity and justice at the Center for American Progress. Now, uh, during the holiday season, we like to talk about, you know, the good things, how everybody gets together and is loving each other. Uh, but sadly, during the holiday season, there's a lot of ugly stuff going on, uh, you know, anti, you know, white nationalism, uh, anti-Semitism. And uh, the first question I want to ask Edwith is, and I have this uh, thing behind me, uh, unity or division? Uh, and let me ask you, uh, Edwith, and you're, you deal with racial issues at the Center for American Progress. Uh, are we in a united country or a divided country? This is such a huge question, um, Brad. So uh, That's Brad. why I get paid the big bucks to ask them. <laughs> yes. Um, I think in my opinion, we as Americans are united that we want a better country and we want to see more. But I do think that we are divided, you know, and divided in the sense that, as you talked about, there are white nationalist voices out there. There are people still committing hate crimes because of your race, gender or, you know, sexuality. There are all these things that come up and are happening. And even from a policy perspective, like we're still waiting for Congress to pass legislation to really recognize slavery and to also pass policies to recognize the lasting effects of slavery. So in my opinion, I think we are a divided country, but, you know, I do believe that we can move closer to being more united. Well, let me ask you about that. You mentioned uh, the House of Representatives. Uh, we have we will continue to have a somewhat shaky Democratic majority uh, in the Senate. Uh, the House uh, is going to be controlled by Republicans. They won't have much of a margin, but they you know, probably, I guess Kevin McCarthy is going to be speaker at some point. I don't know. I don't pretend to understand Republican politics. I barely <laughs> understand with Democrats, and I've worked with them for decades. Uh, but uh, is the fact that the GOP now can controls the House? I mean, you mentioned something. You think they could pass a bill to ban slavery? No. I mean, well, I mean, you know, really. I mean, there was this last election cycle, we saw a couple of states either passing legislation to ban slavery or uh, passing legislation in support of slavery. And in this context, while I'm talking about slavery, I'm talking about the paid labor um, or unpaid labor of people who are incarcerated, um, that there is legislation that talks about that. 
in general, in terms of like slavery as it is here in America, just to have people recognize that and not shut down when it comes to talking about racial equity and justice is a huge thing. So with the House being in the way that it is now, my concern is uh, what does this mean for some of the advancements that we have made, you know, this year and year prior? So when Biden first started um, and came into office, he passed a whole, like day one, first thing he did was sign an executive order for a whole government approach around equity. That was monumental and historic. Since then, each agency has released an equity action plan to talk about how they are going to move towards equity within their work and their programming and in their data collection and all kinds of things. And what I'm concerned with is that we already have this commitment from the administration, from agencies to advance racial equity. So I'm just curious, not curious, but like I'm basically sitting at the edge of my seat to see how Congress is going to try to either undermine those advancement, those equity action plans, or whether they're going to step up and try to support them. We've already heard rumblings of opposition to a lot of these equity things. There's a huge strategic attack against race-conscious programming, race-conscious remedies, and stuff like that um, to really answer like the history and the effects of slavery within this country. The fact that there are so so much disparities raging from housing, healthcare, economic opportunity, it is so critical and important that we do have these remedies. So to hear that the opposition and those who are part of the Republican Party um, are completely opposed to that and want to remove race-conscious remedies, it just makes me, you know, sitting again at the edge of my seat, waiting to hear what they're going to do to undermine what our government, what the administration has done to to advance racial equity. Okay, uh, and uh, let's uh, let's uh, try this. Uh, is there? Do you think there are any areas of agreement where President Biden, who I agree with you, I think has done a lot uh, in the area of racial equity and justice, and a lot of other things that he doesn't get credit for? Uh, do you think there's any president can find any gra- common ground uh, in the House with House Republicans on this issue? Or is that just, you know, uh, totally unrealistic? I don't think we're going to find grounding. I think it's really ridiculous that racial equity is something that is seen as such a polarizing incident, like a polarizing topic. Like if you support racial equity, the idea is that you would be part of the Democratic Party. Not everyone in the Democratic Party does support racial equity, you know, racism and racist Uh, can occupy either party. But I do think that there is strategic disagreement about what does racial equity look like. I do think that there is disagreement in terms of like what America needs. But I'd be curious to see, like, I think, you know, Biden has a history of finding partnership in places that uh, is not really easy for a lot of people to find partnerships. So I'm hoping that he can use his skills and of partnership and negotiation to find some common ground or, I mean, just to pass good policy that help people survive um, what is happening in our economy and, like, be able to take care of their families and be healthy. Okay. Well, uh, we have to go to a break now, but when uh, we come back, I do want to talk about the economy and uh, racial equity. Uh, our guest in this half hour is Edwith Theogene uh, from the Center for American Progress. Uh, she's the Senior Director of uh, Racial Equity and Justice at the Center for American Progress. And we will talk more about this issue once we get back from this break for our radio listeners. 
Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. My guest in this half hour uh, is Edward Theogene, Senior Director for Racial Equity and Justice at the Center for American Progress. Let me ask you this question. Uh, how far uh, how far behind are communities of color uh, behind uh, uh, white Americans uh, in terms of are we making it? We, you said we did make some progress. Uh, how much progress did we make? The progress was just to rebound. Like we rebounded to a place that's a little bit better than previous years, but uh, than previous economic recoveries. But they've always been sort of like doing bad as it pertains to job participation, um, wages, and all of that. So while things are better in this recovery than previous recoveries, we still have to think through all the different um, disparities that existed before then, right? Like um, wage growth hasn't meaningfully closed the racial and gender wage gaps. Both of those gaps still persist. Um, Let me see if I can find the number for you because the racial wealth gap is a lot for us to think about and one of the big focus points of our work here because it still continues to persist. So we have a history of slavery. We have a history of redlining. We have this history of uh, being denied like credit and other kind of economic opportunities like home ownership. And because of that, we have been robbed, like people of color have been robbed of economic opportunities. So they're always going to be left behind in comparison to their white counterparts who have had more economic opportunities. Um, Always, always. Do you think we'll ever, you know, fill the gap? Is we just curse with this? Um, I think we will be able to fill the gap, but we have to think about it more broadly than we have in the past, right? Everyone's thinking about how do we increase wages, like the minimum wage? How do we, um, you know, create better jobs that communities of color have access to? And those are great, but they don't really address the problem from a holistic view because the way that the racial wealth gap works is that it also connects to other issues, right? It connects to health disparities. It connects to environmental injustice. It connects to all of these different things that continue to make communities of color vulnerable um, to the risk that also impact, like, you know, your financial security, your economic security. So, for instance, the average person needs about like four or five hundred dollars to deal with a day to day risk, whether that's a doctor's visit, the breakdown of your car or anything like that. And most people of color don't have that kind of income. That's where wealth comes in, right? Like we call it the racial wealth gap because the community needs wealth or the individual needs wealth and they don't have that in comparison to their white counterparts. So even if we do, um, you know, increase wages, there's still a game of like catch up that these communities have to do. So it's not enough to just look at it from an economic frame. We also need to look at it from a health frame, from a climate and environmental justice frame. You know, we need to look at it holistically as to what communities of color are grappling with day to day that really impact their financial security and impact their opportunities to seek like additional economic opportunities to thrive. It's not enough to tell someone to go to college and get a degree or get like, you know, an expertise in a particular skill set, because even while they can get that good job that pays more money, they don't have the wealth to sustain themselves to ensure that they're secure in the same way that their counterparts are. Uh, let me ask you this question. It just popped up into my mind. I was watching uh, one of the uh, re- possible Republican presidential candidates 
uh, and he was uh, Ron DeSantis to go. I was just thinking that. I was yeah, like, well, that, Ron yeah, <laughs> what you were talking about set me off. And he was complaining about, you know, woke corporations. What does he mean by that exactly? Is that a racial cold word? I'm not sure what he means by work woke corporations. <clears throat> I would never imagine to know what is going through Ron DeSantis's mind. My assumption is um, during 2020, we saw a lot of organizations step up to the plate to talk about their commitments to racial equity and justice. And I'm assuming he's he's thinking about that. But I also think that like that should not be something to be ashamed of, right? Or to shame anyone for, for them committing as an organization, as a company, to advancing racial equity and racial yeah, justice. Yeah, sounds like a good thing. Right. It so does sound like a good thing. complaining about it? I think this goes back to the bigger strategy uh, that I referenced earlier of them really attacking race-conscious remedies um, and really trying to do away with the different gains that we have made as a policy, as a community, and as a society to really attack and address uh, racial injustice and racial inequities. So that is just like, I think, a cohort move to really attack and undermine all of those different kinds of advancement. And I think that that is something that we should be really, really paying attention to, right? Like, why are we shaming companies coming out and, you know, putting their money where their mouth is and saying that they are committed to supporting racial equity and racial justice, saying that they are committed to making sure that all of their employees feel welcomed in their organization and saying that they are committed to advancing safe and healthy communities. Like that is something that we really need to think about. And as the Republican Party and conservatives continue to undermine this race, race conscious, these race conscious remedies. And when I say race conscious remedies, I'm talking about affirmative action. I'm talking about fair housing. I'm talking about a lot of the wins from the civil rights movement while they're trying to undermine all of those things. Um, and businesses are stepping up to support that. We need to be very, very concerned. Because that's going to change the whole dynamic of future generations. It's going to change the whole dynamic of how our democracy works. And it's going to change the whole dynamic of our country in just a way that, I mean, that's concerning. That's scary. Our guest in this half hour is Edward Theogene, who's Senior Director for Racial Equity and Justice at the Center for American Progress. Uh, let me ask you this uh we talked about the turnover in the House of Representatives and Republican control. Uh, we also have, uh, that may be Governor DeSantis backing, barking in the background um, after, anyway. Uh, we uh, talked about the fact that the GOP is going to control the House. Uh, but I want to ask you about one thing. Uh, for the first time in American history, uh, we have uh, an African-American uh, leading the party, a Democratic Party in the House of Representatives, Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, now, is it still a big deal? We had a black president for eight years, Barack Obama. We now have an African-American vice president, Kamala Harris. Um, is this a big deal or is it just, you know, another step uh, on the ladder towards racial equality? 
I think it's a big deal. I think Hakeem Jeffries, Representative Jeffries, is amazing and will be a great leader in this. You know, I just had the pleasure of working with his office in the past on different issues, and he's always been such a great progressive leader. I think this is a moment to celebrate and also a moment to reflect because you have to wonder why is this the first time this is happening in our in our country's history? And this moment, like, should it happen earlier? Why hasn't it happened earlier? Why is this the first moment? But it's also a moment, like I said, to celebrate the fact that this is happening, that he is stepping into this leadership role to lead uh, the Democratic Party in the House. So I'm excited to to see what he can accomplish, given the landscape and given how challenging it's going to be. Yeah, it's probably going to be very challenging. Uh, but uh, his uh his election uh, went a lot more smoothly uh, than uh, Kevin McCarthy on the Republican side. My guess is Kevin McCarthy will end up speaker, but it's not going to be clean and easy like uh, uh, Congressman Jeffrey's ascension. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, let me ask you about uh, uh, now. I'm, I'm going to ask you quickly because we're you know in about a minute left. Uh, what cases in the Supreme Court should be we watching uh, out for that concern racial equity and justice? Oh my gosh, every case. Um, there's well, been just, a couple. Well, highlight one or two that are very important. Yes, yes. Uh, the major one is the case on affirmative action, which is uh, calling in University of North Carolina and Harvard. Um, the case basically argues that the 14th Amendment, which applies to public universities and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, um, also applies to private universities and that take federal funding. So that's one case. There's a couple of cases that are also um, continuing. Well, let me ask to, you about the uh, affirmative action case. Is that a done deal? Uh, I remember reading about the hearing, the oral arguments. Uh, it seems like the Supreme Court is moving to end affirmative action. Uh, if they do, what impact will that have? I mean, it'll have a lot of impact. It basically will set the tone for how we approach race within this country as it pertains to policy and programming. So like I said, this is one of the cases that is one of the the domino, the dominoes in the how do how are we getting rid of race conscious remedies within this country? Sorry to interrupt you again, but we are out of time and still lots to talk about, which means we'll have to drag you back on the show after the <laughs> first of the year. Uh, meantime, enjoy the holiday season. I also want to thank our guests in the first half hour, CNN military analyst uh, Cedric Layton, and also uh, for our executive producer, Mark Gamaldi, who keeps the show online and uh, the train running on time. Happy holidays. <laughs> but like the Rolling Stones says, baby, 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 I'm out of time. <laughs>